Hello and welcome to the African Tech Roundup, episode 76 for the week ending Monday, September 26th, 2016. This is where we round up the week's most important tech, digital and innovation news from across the African continent. My name is Andy Lemasubu. Thank you for listening in. In today's show, I'll be lifting the curtain on the hustle of four startup co-founders whose business project, dubbed Airby, recently won the MIT Global Startup Labs competition at Wits University. Now, we often hear from listeners based outside the continent who are keen to get a sense of what it's like to develop a good idea into a startup and then scale that into a thriving business, all under the unrelenting African sun. Now, if you're one such listener, stick around till later to hear Airby's four co-founders dish on their hustle. But first, we'll get into this week's headlines, which include solar company D-Light raising 225 million dollars to grow its paygo business globally yahoo reeling from the worst cyber attack in history and vodafone egypt etisalat and orange egypt all declining to bid for the 4g licenses currently being offered by the egyptian government that's all ahead but first this episode of the african tech roundup is brought to you by our sister podcast african tech conversations the series features relaxed in-depth chats that i've had with leading entrepreneurs, innovators, and executives who are intimately involved in Africa's tech scene. Uh, featured are the likes of Tommy Davies, Alan Knott Craig Jr., Toro Orero, and Teto Nyati, just to name some, all like you've probably never heard them before. To listen, simply head to our SoundCloud account at soundcloud.com forward slash African Tech Roundup and click on the African Tech Conversations playlist or search for the African Tech Conversations podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, or any other good podcatcher. And so last week, the Internet Society hosted its annual global membership meeting called Intercommunity. At a time when U.S. lawmakers continue to debate the merits of allowing Internet governance to shift from the United States to the international body ICANN. Now, one of our listeners in the U.S., Nicholas, attended one of the sessions held in Washington, D.C., and sent us a report detailing the biggest issues discussed and explaining why some politicians in the U.S. remain opposed to the transition. Take a listen. Hello, my name is Nicholas and I'm in Washington, D.C. The Internet Society is an organization which works to ensure that the Internet stays open, transparent, and shaped by its users. On Wednesday the 24th, they held their annual global membership meeting called Intercommunity. This meeting took place in three different time blocks to accommodate multiple regions. Each session had a physical location where people could meet or an online portal which allowed users to view the meeting and interact using a chat room. Session one was held in the Asia Pacific region. They discussed internet security. Some of the physical locations for this session were Bangkok, Thailand, Singapore, Sydney, Australia, Tokyo, Japan, Istanbul, Pakistan, and Manila in the Philippines, to name a few. Session two was in Africa, the Middle East, and Europe. Some of the physical locations for these meetings included Johannesburg, Nairobi, Cameroon, Brussels, Moscow, and Geneva. In this session, they discussed economic benefits and empowerment coming from the internet. Session three was held in Latin America, the Caribbean, and North America. This meeting focused around internet governance. Some of the physical locations included Washington, D.C., New York, Mexico City, Venezuela, Argentina, 
Argentina and Ottawa, Canada. In total, the three meeting sessions had more than 2,500 people in 160 countries around the world participate in the 41 physical locations and online. I attended the third session in Washington, D.C., which was held in the Microsoft Innovation and Policy Building. Our guest speaker was Lawrence Strickerling. Mr. Strickerling is the Assistant Secretary for Communications and Information. He serves in the National Telecommunications and Information Administration, which is a part of the U.S. Department of Commerce. Last week, he testified in front of a U.S. Senate committee regarding transitioning of Internet governance from the United States to an international body called ICANN. Some politicians in the United States oppose this transition. Their concerns are around a misunderstood perception that the international body would somehow be able to restrict or regulate free speech on the internet. The misinterpretation of this transition, which has been planned since the 90s, has more to do with perception than reality. The U.S. politicians who object do so in part because the membership of ICANN includes representatives from countries like China and Russia. Their fear is that governments which they view as hostile actors, would somehow use ICANN to remove content from the internet. ICANN only supervises domain names and manages the distribution of IP addresses. Essentially, what they do is manage the phone book for the internet. What they do ensures that if you were to type in a specific web address, the website you ended up at would be the one you intended to, instead of some scammer stealing the web address to exploit people by redirecting them to a different website. The flow of traffic on the internet itself is controlled by internet network and individual platform operators, not ICANN. The justification being used to oppose this transition to ICANN is not possible from a technical standpoint. This issue is very complicated because it's one involving decision makers in a technical manner that are being made by people who lack technical expertise. This transition is scheduled for the 30th of September, but may be stopped by U.S. Congress. Personally, I support this transition because the internet has become a global commodity, and I believe that no single country should have disproportionate control over its administration. To learn more about this event and how you can become a part of the Internet Society, visit their website at www.internetsociety.org. Many, many thanks to Nicholas for that report. Now, remember, you too can be part of the show. Uh, we'd love for you to share your experiences and insights from the trenches of Africa's tech scene and beyond. Uh, you're welcome to send us an email or an audio note. The email address is hello at africantechroundup.com. We look forward to hearing from you and making your voice heard on this platform. And now it's time to get into this week's news. First up, the hashtag data must fall campaign led by South African celebrity media personality Thibaut Touch presented their case before South Africa's parliament. Now, last week, they put forward allegations that South African mobile telcos are ripping off the public with their data prices, which incidentally are some of the highest in the world. Now, kudos to them, I guess, for turning popular discontent into some meaningful action. I reckon that lobbying lawmakers who actually have the power to influence the regulator, in this case, ICASA, is probably the best way to influence mobile data pricing, at least in the short term. Nevertheless, the hashtag data must fall campaign was largely overshadowed this past week by the hashtag fees must fall student demonstrations that led to universities like Northwest University and Wits University suspending all operations. Now, varsity student activists were definitely more preoccupied with demanding free higher education than with pressing mobile telcos to reduce their data fees. 
In any case, Vodacom and MTN both appeared in Parliament to respond to the allegations made against the mobile network fraternity. In summary, what they said was that most consumers are simply oblivious to how much data they're using because of smarter devices, because of data-hungry apps and faster networks. Basically, they're arguing that quote-unquote disappearing data is basically a perception issue. They also said that freeing up of old bandwidth frequency currently occupied by radio and television stations is probably the best way to drive the cost of data down significantly. Now that, my friends, is not going to happen anytime soon, especially given the myriad of legal battles surrounding the licensing of bandwidth in South Africa. I suppose the thing for me is, I hope all the people that lent their support to the Data Must Fall campaign understand how long it can take for an issue raised before Parliament to actually lead to amendments in law. I figure that by the time that happens, prices may have already come down due to market influences and mobile telcos like Vodacom and MTN will probably at that point have adjusted their models to adapt to the changing technological environment. And they probably won't need to use South African revenue to subsidize their activities in other parts of the continent, which I suspect is what's going on. Now, over the past week, I've listened to a number of commentators discuss this very issue. And I'm convinced that mobile telcos probably do have a case to answer in terms of how they treat customers, particularly contract clients, because they do make it rather tricky to track and curb data spend. But what I'm about to say won't be popular. The thing is, there is no evidence to suggest that South African mobile data users can't afford the mobile data fees that they're currently being charged. And how do I prove that? Well, we're kind of paying, aren't we? Uh, the fact is we're spoiled for choice in South Africa. And like I said last week, mobile data is not the only option out there. So there's ADSL, there's Wi-Fi, there's fiber. I reckon anyone particularly frustrated with the mobile telcos should strike them where it hurts, in their big fat wallets. Cancel your contract. In fact, I've never had one. Uh, then what you do is consciously and actively scale back on mobile data usage and back alternative broadband providers. Then lobby government to speed up the rollout of free public Wi-Fi, which, by the way, we all pay for indirectly anyway. Now, perhaps the Data Must Fall campaign might yet lead to a concerted public effort along those lines. And if not, I fully expect we'll continue to pay whatever the mobile networks choose to charge us for data, subject to regulation, of course. To Kenya next, where one of the biggest funding deals of the week went down last week, solar company D-Lite raised $22.5 million to grow its pay-go business. They're taking it global in an effort to support their mission of providing solar energy solutions for households and small businesses around the world. Now, the company raised $15 million in Series D equity from Kawi Safi Ventures Fund, Energy Access Ventures, Omidya Network, and New Quest Capital Partners, while also securing $2.5 million of debt funding raised through SunFunder and $5 million in grant funding courtesy of the Shell Foundation, the U.S. Agency for International Development, as well as the United Nations Capital Development Fund. You go, Kenya. Solar energy-related ventures are proving to be winning tickets this year so far. can only bode well for the continent, I think given the challenge to deliver electricity to millions of Africans who currently must make do without. And meanwhile, in Nigeria, the Lagos-based real estate classified startup Tulet.com.ng has raised a 1.2 million Series A round of funding from Frontier Digital Ventures. Now, they plan to use the money to improve their technology platform and grow aggressively across Nigeria over the next 12 to 18 months. 
Well, my view is they'll no doubt need a lot more money than that um, as they go along, given what we know about how tentatively Nigerians are taking to e-commerce. Nevertheless, this investment represents a massive vote of confidence. And with some clever maneuvering and some good fortune, they should gain sufficient traction to comfortably land Series B funding. They have already managed to distinguish themselves in the Nigerian market by collecting commissions as opposed to working on a subscription model. Basically making it so that if they don't land a deal, they don't get paid. So perhaps that's just the thing to make Nigerians think twice before hiring a regular property agent and taking their business online. And now for some international news. Yahoo! Remember them? Well, they're in poor shape at the moment. Last week it came to light that the internet company had been the target of the largest cyber breach in history. At least that's as far as the breaches that have been publicly announced are concerned. Now the company has come out saying that state-sponsored hackers have stolen information from about 500 million users. Yes folks, that's half a billion people email addresses, passwords, birth dates, and apparently in some cases even security questions and answers, as well as encrypted passwords, all stolen. And in case you're thinking this just happened, well, no, it didn't just happen. This happened back in 2014, my people. But before you feel too bad, don't, because it turns out Verizon, who are in the process of buying Yahoo for $4.83 billion, have said that they were notified of the massive breach only this past week. And some analysts reckon that this news isn't likely to affect the sale at all. Uh, reports are continuing to surface, giving us a sense of how far-reaching the impact of this hack is. Apparently, if you've ever been a BT Internet or Sky Broadband customer, you're likely to be at risk because these two companies outsource their webmail to Yahoo, and they're just one of many, many, many companies that have done the same. Oh, and then, of course, there are the class action suits that are being filed by Americans who are incensed by Yahoo's slip-up or what they're calling a breach of trust. So it goes without saying, to all seven of you who still use Yahoo, uh, go change your passwords, folks. And remember that the real danger is the fact that if you're like most human beings, you tend to use the same password on other sites. So go and change those too, because those hackers will no doubt be trying to trace you across other platforms. To South Africa next, where it's been an interesting week for the video-on-demand scene, as well as for television in general. Firstly, uh, fixed-line operator Telcom, as well as the NASPERS-owned VOD service Showmax, announced some streaming packages that essentially offer consumers access to zero-rated content. Now, I've spoken often on this show about the likelihood of major strategic partnerships forming between major telecom service providers and media giants. In fact, some months ago, I interviewed BT's head for Sub-Saharan Africa, Oliver Fortain, uh, for the African Tech Conversation series. And he went as far as saying that of all the tech trends with the potential to disrupt BT's business worldwide, he reckons media is the dark horse to watch. And I said if there were smart telecoms players like BT would do everything they could to be on the inside track as far as media is concerned. And so here it is, going down like he said it might. And by the way, the conversation I had with Oliver Fortain is definitely worth a listen. You can check it out by searching for the African Tech Conversations podcast on SoundCloud, iTunes, Stitcher, and any other good podcatcher. But uh, meanwhile, DSTV Supersport uh, decided to live stream South Africa's Varsity Football Final on Facebook last week. The stream drew well over 16,000 viewers and no doubt signals the dawning of a new day, at least as far as large sporting spectacles looking to tap new audiences uh, do so by harnessing social media platforms. 
Now, congratulations to Twane University of Technology, who won their match against the University of Johannesburg by two goals to one. I'm obviously a little gutted about that, given I was definitely rooting for UJ. But um, both teams being a part of South African television history. Now, this trend to live streaming major sporting events on social media platforms is definitely one to watch. Now, staying with news out of South Africa, Uber has announced a number of different security measures that they're hoping will curb the recent spate of criminal incidents linked to their ride-sharing service in South Africa. Now, in addition to ongoing reports of Uber drivers and riders facing harassment and sometimes even violence uh, from traditional cab drivers in certain places, news of riders being kidnapped, assaulted, and even robbed have also surfaced lately. Now, some of the measures Uber says it's already started rolling out is providing riders with the color of a car that they might have hailed, uh, in addition to being sent the driver's image, the vehicle type, and of course the license plate. They've also begun to introduce a panic button system that would allow a driver to send off an SOS signal to Uber's security response team. That's in the event of an attack or an emergency. And also this past week, Uber Africa announced that they'd poached Dion Dutoy from De Beers Group, where he worked as head of global interventions and investigations. While he was at De Beers, he was responsible for combating the global illegal diamond trade and managing the protection of partners and staff. Now, he will inhabit the role of head of security at Uber Africa going forward. So please do tell me, Uber riders in South Africa, have the recent reports of criminal activity linked to the use of Uber made you think twice about using the platform? And are the efforts Uber is making to keep both riders and drivers safe enough to set you at ease? Well, let us know on Twitter at African Roundup. You know, I'm guilty of jumping on Ubers without really checking the vehicle registration number or double checking that the driver matches the picture on the app. Half the time I just see a car that, you know, usually a white Corolla, Toyota Corolla, and I reckon, well, that must be my Uber and I just hop in, you know. And I guess that's partly what some people have done that's gotten them into trouble. Um, particularly if you're being picked up and you're inebriated and uh, you just see what looks like your Uber and you jump in and before you know it, you're somewhere you didn't plan to be. <laughs> Less all your clothes and money. So let me know if you feel safe and if you, like me, are planning to do your due diligence in just making sure you're in the right car to start with. To Nigeria now, where Y Combinator's Nigerian tour has me way more excited than Mark Zuckerberg's visit. Not just because... I'm significantly less suspicious of their motives in coming to the continent, but also because I'm really keen to see what comes off the visit in terms of which parts of Nigeria's ecosystem will capture Michael Siebel and Kasa Yunus's interest the most. There are two people obviously coming through on behalf of the organization, uh, startup founders in their own right. And uh, so the tour kicked off last Friday, September 23rd, where... The Y Combinator Cats made a stop at Startup Friday, as well as at Ingressive's Investor Dinner in Lagos. Then on Saturday, they looked in on Tech Circle at the Lagos Business School. And of course, today, uh, Monday, September 26th, the tour continues at Ingressive's press conference, uh, which will be hosted at Indela. It's scheduled for 9 a.m. Uh, and then following that at 11 a.m., uh, Y Combinator will be hosting their office hours event. The tour ends on Wednesday with a Y Combinator coffee chat uh, at Cafe Neo in Lagos at 4.45 p.m. But for details on all the rest of the stops Y Combinator will be making in Nigeria, uh, because, of course, they'll also be visiting Abuja, uh, just head to techcabal.com. They've listed all the details there. 
And um, do let us know what you think, Nigeria. What do you make of this visit? Uh, are you impressed by the two gentlemen there? What kind of conversations are you having? What is your sense of what Y Combinator will take back to America and deliberate on regarding our tech ecosystem? Give us a shout on Twitter and let us know at African Roundup. And so finally, in an interesting turn, Egypt's existing mobile telecoms providers, namely Vodafone Egypt, Etisalat, and Orange Egypt, have all declined to take up 4G licenses in that country. Now, you'll remember that a few weeks ago, we reported on the fact that Egypt's only fixed-line operator, the partly government-owned Telecom Egypt, uh, acquired one of the four 4G licenses on offer for around $797 million. This, of course, in a bid to enter the country's mobile market directly. Now, it turns out the country's three existing mobile telecoms players have turned their noses at the remaining licenses because they don't agree with the terms on offer. They're saying that the government currently isn't offering enough spectrum to operate 4G services. It does seem, though, that they'd be keen to participate if the terms were revised. But it seems that the Egyptian government is in no mood to negotiate. And now uh, the, the government plans to auction the licenses on the international market. Now, foreign operators like Zane, China Telecom, Saudi Telecom, and Lebara KSA have all expressed interest in acquiring the licenses, but it does remain to be seen whether the terms rejected by Vodafone, Orange, and Itasalat will prove satisfactory for them. And those are the week's biggest stories, folks. And now, as promised, I'll be lifting the curtain on the hustle of four startup co-founders whose business project named Airby recently won MIT Global Startup Labs competition at Fitz University. Uh, we'll be looking under the hood of their hustle, as it were. A really interesting conversation. A sneak peek into the life and mindset of startup founders uh, doing their thing right here in Johannesburg, South Africa. Take a listen. So, fellas, say hi to the people. Just say your name and uh, what you do at Abai. Hi, my name is Jabulu Makatini, and I focus more on the marketing side at Abai. Hi, my name is Tapanko, and I am the CEO of Abai. Hello, my name is Simone Longosi, and I focus on the strategy of Abai. Hi, my name is Gabriel Twala, and I focus on the technical side of Abai. Yeah, so you guys uh, attended the MIT Global Startup Labs uh, sessions at at, uh, at Wits University. What's the biggest or most important thing you learned there it's about? Uh, building a business around your product is the most important thing that we learned. They gave us a lot of business tools, like getting your market research in check, you know, uh, figuring out your customer lifetime costs or customer lifetime value, stuff like that, that we weren't really queued up on. So, yeah. And so as a tech head, is it often difficult to, to balance the need to have a business mindset as well as care about every single last piece of code? Well, they also taught us to actually, before starting to code, starting to touch your computer, you must actually wireframe everything. So now make sure that everything loops around each page that you want on your app or maybe so your website and make sure everything is functional before actually touching code. And so what would you say um, is the biggest aspiration you have when you look at other tech ecosystems outside of Africa? Now, there's a lot that makes us unique, and we're going to get into that um, relative to more developed countries and, and, and developed scenes. But what, do, what is one of the things that you look at, say, looking over at Silicon Valley or London or Tel Aviv or places like that, that you aspire to as a startup founder or co-founder? 
Uh, one of the key things is that, you know, in Silicon Valley, they, they have this culture of fail fast. Uh, I think if we can implement that in South Africa, actually, or Africa, we can, we can achieve a lot. And, and besides failing fast is that startups in the U.S. and Silicon Valley take time to develop their businesses before they can make profit. They don't just make profit. If they make profit, they just throw it into scaling and growing the businesses. So that also aspired me because most of us here, when we start making 100,000 100, rands or 100,000 US dollars and everything, we, it's a party. But for them, it's not. They rather spend six months in an office, uh, no renting or, or anything, just renting an office and just showering in a gym just to grow their businesses and the culture. So if we can implement that and not and not treat like our startups like a nine to five where you just get in an office like 9 a.m. and then 5 p.m. just go home. No, just set like a hundred hour per week and then, you know, take it from there. Yeah. All right, Sanjabula, this is not your first taxi ride, my man. <laughs> 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 yeah, no, I've, I've been in this taxi before. So, yeah, I mean, we, we, we have a history. Uh, I interviewed you some years back about a, a, another startup that you, you co-founded that actually did quite well in the hardware see, uh, space. Um, now this is a software uh, place. What are some of the things um, you see quite differently to when you first came on the scene with your boosted technology, uh, which was helping people, you know, which has become quite normal now, but at the time it came out, it was, very, it was, quite, it was quite a thing to have a, a device you could latch onto your smartphone that would help you charge it, like extend the battery life, etc. cetera. Um, this is significantly different, like I said, in the software space. What have you learned relative to coming to the scene some years ago to where you are now? Um, definitely. I think a lot of lessons that um, I've learned. Um, we, we started Booster, I think, in 2014, um, and it's more in the hardware. And as you can imagine, comparing software to hardware, hardware is, is, is difficult, especially in our country, Africa, um, or in our continent, because um, there's a lot of parts that you need to import and, and a lot of things involved. But I think overall, one thing that I've definitely um, um, taken up is one point that uh, Sponello mentioned in terms of like failing fast. Um, it's very, very much key to um, zoom out of your business so that you can view it strategically. I've learned um, to, to sort of be able to stand back and view your business outside of it because you get involved in a lot of things and in the day-to-day -day runnings and sometimes you don't even see when you're sort of hitting the wall. So um, I think especially with software and with a, a, a pro, when you're trying to build a, a pro project or a company that is fresh and that is breaking new grounds with whatever is happening out there, it's very much tricky because you need to get it right. You know, I think the, the most important thing is proving a business model that works, you know, and I think those are simply the lessons that I learned in terms of from where we started with Booster to where we are right now. What would you say is the most important metric to track, broadly speaking, as a startup uh, CEO, Zebang, and uh, a startup CEO on the African continent? Now, we know that if you are in Silicon Valley and you get certain traction as far as, say, Facebook likes, um, you know, that might, you know, that might extend your runway in that, in that scenario. Not so much here. <laughs> Not so much here. So given that, like, speak to what are some of the most important metrics for your business specifically and the discipline required 
to focus on those things and not be taken up by the fact that you guys are getting to go to Portugal and you've won this competition? Just from our perspective, because we are still in the pre-revenue stage, but it comes down to like what we do on a day-to-day basis. So we tend to set goals, and the hard thing about achieving those goals is having the discipline and commitment to working towards them. So like, fortunately for us now, we have uh, a mentor who helps us with the business. And that has really helped us in terms of getting things done. What kind of mentor, in a technical sense or in a business sense or both? Uh, in a business sense, in a business, because we're trying to build a business around our product. Things like Facebook likes, they don't, like for us, it's not really, it doesn't really count. But if we have your contact details, we, it's something that we can use because uh, the Facebook likes don't translate to people signing up on our page. I suppose in terms of growth metrics, uh, and the point I'm tr- I'm, I'm, uh, I think you're making and I'm trying to make as well is um, being committed to metrics that are directly linked to hardcore things like revenue and profitability, yeah? Yeah, true. Um, I think also adding, uh, taking from where um, what Sabang actually mentioned, I think um, also one thing that we've sort of realized is the facade that comes with being a tech startup. Um, being funded a does not mean success. Um, I think we follow uh, Crunchbase. There's a site called Crunchbase, which is only dedicated on informing you of the startups that got funded. But the concern is no one actually tells you what happened to them because um, when you start to scrutinize and follow up on it, others have shut down for various reasons because it, it all boils down to the metrics. How do you sort of define the metrics and stuff? So um, for us, it all boils down to the consumers because we can create something that might convince Andile Masugu. We can create something that can convince a VC who's a billionaire and they might be willing to give us like 5M, but it all boils down to the user at the end of the day. And I think one thing that we've been sort of stressing and putting all our energy on is the user, is getting it right with the users. As as long as we can get it right with the users, it doesn't matter whether you're funding or not, I think you are guaranteed to success. Let it uh, sort of cover the need of the user. Let it be a solution that is relevant to that user because it can make sense in a project, a presentation, but to the user, you might be quite old. So let's talk about failure um, and the culture of failure or the lack thereof in our particular ecosystem. It doesn't go down well around here to be like, ah, you know, I started this business, it didn't work out, and, you know. Um, I've had massive um, arguments with people, people I love who mean quite well, who when I hold up my scars, I see a beautiful picture, whereas they see just <laughs> like all these L's all the place, you know, everywhere. And, and it's frustrating to me because other ecosystems get to to celebrate and learn from failure. I want to talk about the potential for failure in every startup, and I want you to tell, you know, to give me an honest assessment of how you guys might come to decide that this hasn't worked out, and you guys might need to pivot, might need to shut everything down altogether and try something else. How would you arrive at that, that, um, that uh, conclusion? We've actually spoken about this, where we discussed, maybe say, this... Uh, project doesn't go as planned. Uh, 
what would we do next? So we, we've, we have, as startups, it's advised to actually have plan Bs or something that something else that you might actually do, which we've, we, we've got like three other projects, but we felt like uh, API is actually, you know, the most viable one for now. And that's the one we actually uh, putting our energies in. So until we feel maybe after a good, say a year, then we might actually start talking and saying, is this going somewhere? Or guys, do we need to do something else? You know, because we're not getting we're not getting what we actually looking for, you know. That's money, being able to live off this company. That's number one. Because uh, apparently, uh, well, it is a case actually where you start making money after a good two years or three years. So will we, will we be able to survive, you know, during those two years with this project? So now they are, that's also like a major concern. Uh, and also adding on that, uh, the year will pivot the project completely. We're gonna break down. We break down the, the the project into three, into four actually. Three months, three months, three months. So, the first three months we try this model. If it doesn't work completely, we pivot the model. But still, a buy. We introduce the next model in the next few months and we try to get as much as uh, uh, surveys that we can. If it fails, also we pivot until the year is complete. And now we say like, we've tried. We've tried different models because we've been uh, we've been studying. One thing about MIT is that they've been teaching us about business canvases and all this stuff, you know, how to implement your business and how to go about it. So uh, you don't have to scratch your project firsthand when it doesn't succeed. Maybe there's something wrong that you don't even realize. Just go back to the drawing board and just point out the mistakes and everything and go back again with the with a different approach. And if it doesn't work also, go back again until you're done with all your models, so that's what we're planning to do, yeah. And so you, you guys uh, touched on something quite interesting, this idea of how do you survive through that process? I mean, a year is a long time, and I know you, two of you, at least two of you guys are fresh out of varsity, right? And the other two, you guys are now pretty much veterans in the startup <laughs> scene. Goodness knows how you've been doing it, but on a practical level, speak to people who are sitting, listening to us in um, our, big, our biggest audience outside of Africa is the US and, and the UK. And, and people are fascinated about the experience, about your experiences, starting something from nothing, and, and how people survive it. So t t talk me through how you four are surviving it. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's rough. <laughs> August was the worst month. So, uh, so to survive in terms of money, because what we decided as, the, as a group is that we we just going all in. We're not taking uh, full-time jobs and stuff like that. And because of that, now we have to get creative on how we're going to get money since uh, Airbuy is still not making money for us yet. So on my, uh, for me, I, I'm also a photographer. So I get revenue from, I mean, I get money from doing shoots, photo shoots. And I'm fortunate to be, uh, I'm, I'm friends with the DJ, so he always rolls around. So I just shoot wherever he is, and I get to meet different people from clubs and whatever. Sometimes I take people's numbers, send them photos, and then ask them questions based on our products, just doing market research. Yeah, so, yeah. Hustle and flow, papa. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, Jabulo, uh, some, he, hooked, he hooked us up with 
uh, this other events company, so we work with them at times and get some money there. So it's just getting money just to stay afloat, but we always remind ourselves of what it is that we're here for. We're here for the business. Everything else is just to help us survive. Do your, families do, do your families understand? Do your significant others understand? How difficult is it to sort of translate the passion you have for this and what really, for, for people who can't see what you see the way you see it in your head, um, how, how difficult has it been to, to enthuse the people in your lives to the vision you guys have? Uh, for me, my grandma still doesn't understand what I'm doing. Because <laughs> uh, the moment I left, jo I left Bloemfontein for, for Joburg, you know, uh, I was going to study law. I studied law. I have a law background. But along the way, I was like, now nah, I'm a startup now. She was like, what's that? What, what are you doing? Uh, computer. So every time when she sees me, she's like, oh, we're working with computers. But they always want to see that chunk. They're expecting me to show up with something. Uh, a house, a car, but they don't understand that it takes time, you know what I mean? Uh, even even the guys from Angry Bird took them like 58 years to get Angry Bird out. So it's patience and patience and patience, yeah. So I guess also communication is very key and learning to, to actually speak with people you have relationships with, especially people that you're under, like your parents, like your immediate parents. Um, it's hard, it's very hard, you know, especially being a, like a fresh graduate, you know. I had to uh, teach myself how to do websites to actually, you know, uh, get some more money, you know. We all actually know a bit of WordPress, you know, so that we can actually live, live off something, you know. <laughs> yeah, so that's how we survive for now. And guys, I want you to speak to your contemporaries across the continent. I think it's so sad how disconnected we are. Um, I was at Demo Africa some weeks ago and met these amazing people. In fact, I met you guys there. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Okay. yeah, yeah. Actually, no. <laughs> I can't believe I couldn't remember. I, couldn't, I didn't. Anyway. So I met people like you, but you guys met like amazing entrepreneurs from all over the continent. And it's, it, you know, I actually, I was inspired on one hand, but I was really gutted to think that we're pretty much just, many of those people are just as as distant and, 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 and strange to us as someone sitting in Silicon Valley. And that's really sad. And it's one of the things we're trying to change with, you know, the African Roundup. We're in Brahm, people, in case you, you thought we were faking a location. Yeah, so what do you want to say? Like heart to heart, man to woman in, in, in many cases, um, startup founder to startup founder. What do you want to say to, to our African brothers and sisters listening to us right now? I think personally, as Africans, we bigger and stronger than we think. Um, I think uh, maybe globally, um, other people in other parts of the world view us as starting off or, I don't know, a bit sort of victimized kind of a thing. But for the fact that in such um, unfavorable environments, we are able to stand firm and start companies and that grow to be something amazing. I think that shows you the power we have as Africans. And I think it's a point that you are mentioning that I've also noticed. And I think us collaborating more and sort of having a lot of 
things that we do and engage with each other, we can have greater strength to not even need um, any you, anyone from the Silicon Valleys of the world or anything like that. But us just collaborating together, even doing business together. I mean, if you do something and you are connected to the whole of Africa alone, you're good. You do not even need to scale it out of Africa. So I think we are missing a lot from um, being so disconnected and everything. Uh, you know what got me off on, especially on Demo Africa, uh, is that two guys who were doing the same thing were opposite each other, and that kind of broke my heart because these guys are doing the same thing, but they don't even know about each other. Probably it's the same service that they're giving out, and, and, and for them not to know more about each other and be able to be like opposite each other, because like it costs... Uh, it caused confusion to many people, and also, it's for them. It's like, okay, uh, what are we doing here? Because uh, now you be trying to sell the product that your neighbor is selling at the exhibition, and it's it's pretty bad for business. And exactly for reputation, it's pretty bad. So with us, it's that we don't have uni union. I would say let's unite, and and by that we we'll know who's doing what and who's not doing what. I'll know what my neighbor is doing and I'll try and tweak that. Instead of me competing with him or her, I'll, I'll be like, look, I'll be the guy who's sweeping at your salon. You're cutting the hair. Like, for example, you're cutting the hair, right? I'll be the guy who's sweeping. You're the tech guy. I'll be the encryption guy. And with that, it's like the good relationship and the growth of Africa rather than competing with one another. Uh, and, and another thing is that uh, as tech guys or startup guys, like go out to entrepreneurial events, meet people. That's where we met Andile. We, you know, just meet people, go out there, meet people like you. Don't just stay there working on your product, you know? Yeah. And when you can travel, right? Like you guys are about to do. Yeah, when you can travel, you know? Yeah. Open yourself up to the world. And so in the spirit of sort of uh, letting Africa in on your hustle, and how can people get in touch with you and track your progress? We'll be watching for every pivot. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Uh, people can uh, definitely get in touch with us. Um, our website is www.airby.co.za. Feel free to hit us up if you want to partner, if you want to work together, if you want to be a client, anything. We're just open to just engage with anyone across the world, yeah. Fantastic, guys. You guys, uh, your, your families ought to be proud. Your mothers would certainly yeah. be proud if they could, if they could see you now. Um, and uh, I'm really excited to see what's, what's the, 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 the vibe that's starting to, to take hold of Bromfontein. For those of you who are not familiar with Johannesburg, Bromfontein is an urban precinct um, just one bridge away from uh, Johannesburg city center proper. The bridge is the Nelson Mandela Bridge, which crosses right over... Um, um, the train tracks, where we're actually staring at them right now. And this place is really becoming a hotbed of innovation, and I'm really excited about it. Silicon Brown uh, is, is how it has to go down over here, with you guys all up in the mix. So congratulations to you. Enjoy your trip to Portugal. Come back quickly uh, to, to keep that hustle going, yeah? yeah? Definitely. All right, man, take it easy. A big thank you to all four co-founders of Airby. I certainly wish them all the best on their journey. Uh, a big shout out to the Diz uh, based in Silicon Brahm. It's really encouraging to see the tech and innovation moves being made in that part of the city. 
Now, before we go, this episode of the African Tech Roundup is brought to you by our sister podcast, African Tech Conversations. The series features relaxed, in-depth chats that I've had with leading entrepreneurs, innovators, and executives who are intimately involved in Africa's tech scene. Now, to listen, simply head to our SoundCloud account, soundcloud.com forward slash African Tech Roundup, and click on the African Tech Conversations playlist or search for the African Tech Conversations podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, or any other good podcatcher. And that's it for this week. The show will be back again next week, Monday, on africantechroundup.com at 9 a.m. Central African time. But before I sign off today, I'd like to congratulate good friend of the show, Trevor Wolf, and his team at Dell.io for coming out tops at the Venture Burn Pitching Den at the 2016 Innovation Summit, which was hosted in Johannesburg last week. Good luck to them as they now go on to compete in Phoenix VC Startup World Cup in Silicon Valley next year. They'll be in the running to win $1 million worth of investment. We certainly wish them all the very best. And that's it from me, Andile Masugu. Until next time, do take care, Africa.